0: Welcome to Chick Chat, the Baby Chick Podcast. I'm Nina Spears, the Baby Chick, your host, and we are very excited to have Dr. Harvey Karp again on our show. Dr. Karp is one of America's most trusted pediatricians. He is the author of the best selling books, Happiest Baby on the Block and Happiest Toddler on the Block, and the video, Happiest Baby on the Block, which I highly recommend. Dr. Karp has become a household name and has helped millions of parents understand safe infant sleep practices. He has guided parents on how to nurture their children and relieve some of the stressful issues new parents face. Today, Dr. Karp is here to discuss SIDS, what you need to know and how to reduce the risk. The American Academy of Pediatrics recently updated its guidelines around safe sleep, and parents need to be aware of these new recommendations. There are many ways to reduce the risk of SIDS and practice safe sleep. So let's welcome Dr. Carp to learn more. Hi, Dr. Carp. We are so happy to have you on our podcast again. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Great to be with you, Nina. Thank you so much for having me on again.
0: Absolutely. And for our listeners who maybe didn't hear our last episode together, can you tell us a bit about you and your background and how you came to really specialize in baby sleep?
1: I was like the the around-the-corner pediatrician for a couple of decades here in Santa Monica, which is uh, near where I live in California. And um, listen, you're working with young families. You're going to work with people who are tired and just desperate. How do I get another half hour of sleep? How can I just stretch it a little bit longer? And you know what? It was so weird because pediatricians will tell everyone, well, there's really nothing you can do. You just have to wait. And you know, by four or five months, you can let them cry it out if they're not doing better. And, and while that's true, we also whisper a secret to people who are really struggling, a magic secret that immediately helps almost every child sleep longer. It's called drive them in the car.
0: <laughs> right.
1: I mean, even adults fall asleep in trains and planes and cars. And so it was really interesting when I started thinking about it. I was like, whoa, we should be able to be much more successful if we could just figure out how to drive them in the car without driving them in the car. You know, what is it about cars? You know, it's not combustion engines that are really doing the magic. You know, could we figure this out?
0: And then you basically develop this whole new... Method and have been teaching that for, I believe, 20 years now, the five S's, and then developed the snoo. And I mean, it's kind of exploded from there, right?
1: It's really been like, how do you, what is that works for? Like, look at the world's very best baby commerce and how babies like to sleep, and then figure out, well, why? And can we reproduce that? And so the five S's, that's really part of something called the happiest baby on the block, which like you said. Thank you for reminding me. It came out 20 years ago. Ouch. But the concept is that in a weird sort of way, babies are born three or four months before they're ready for the world. And uh, of course, you know, I've never talked a woman into holding their baby for an extra two months. It wouldn't be very comfortable. But from a baby's point of view, those first four months, they're really kind of like They're still kind of like fetuses. I mean, they still want to be held and rocked and shushed because in the womb, and this is an interesting thing, a lot of people don't know this, but the sound inside before a baby is born is louder than a vacuum cleaner, 24-7, a Mm -hmm. kind of sound. And they're constantly held and cuddled and they're constantly rocked. Even when you're asleep, every time you breathe, your diaphragm is rocking your baby, pushing down on the top of your uterus. And so then they're born and we rip away everything that they were used to. And, you know, we say, tough love, baby. You're in the world now. We don't want you dependent on being held and loved and rocked and shushed. So just, we're going to put you on your back in a still quiet room with no sound, no motion. We're going to close the door. And, you know, why aren't you sleeping better? So when you think about it, it's kind of almost silly the way we expect babies to sleep. Now, by six months, it's totally different because their brains have doubled in size. They're much better able to manage their own sleep organization, but it's a transition period. It takes many months for them to really be used to not needing holding and rocking and shushing. I mean, do you ever use white noise or or recommend that? What you're thinking about using white noise?
0: I'm a big fan and proponent of white noise, especially for our little, little babies. It's been game changer for my children and as a postpartum doula for many of my clients, it's definitely a go-to for me.
1: And so kind of what we're learning is that those sounds... It's really no different than a pillow or a bed. You know, you get used to a very specific pillow. And some people bring their pillow with them <laughs> when they travel. So it's a similar thing to sound. Actually, sound is easier to carry because you can just carry it in your phone compared to a pillow. But it turns out what we're learning is that these sleep associations are not crutches. They are conveniences that prepare us for getting into sleep and staying in better sleep states. And so with parents, using sound, using motion, using swaddling, in those early months at least, can become super helpful for calming crying and promoting sleep.
0: I think when it comes to preparing for sleep, especially when you bring home your newborn something that's on the forefront of parents' minds is I just don't want anything to happen to my baby I'm going to check their breathing every so often they're so nervous and you know SIDS is a scary topic for parents but you know it's also significant can you tell our listeners exactly what is SIDS and how common is it
1: yeah thanks so much I really appreciate that question because it's something that is so important to pediatricians and obvious, like you're saying, uh, every family. People don't so much think about it when they have a baby. You know, the baby is born and you're just trying to get through those first weeks and, and they don't move around very much. So it doesn't really seem like anything bad could happen. But as soon as they start rolling over two or three months, suddenly you realize, oh gosh, this is really something that could be a problem. So anyway, it turns out October is... SIDS Awareness Month or Safe Sleep Month. And so we really like talking to people about what is SIDS and and how to make it better. So SIDS stands for Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. And the terrible tragedy is that about 3,500 babies die every single year in their sleep. Perfectly healthy babies. So parents go to sleep, they put their babies down, wake up in the morning and it's just, their life is devastated. 3,500 is pretty much the number of Americans who died in 9-11, but it happens every single year all across America, rich families, poor families, and everything in between. And we don't exactly know why some babies stop breathing. For some reason, they just forget to breathe. But that's not what happens in most cases. In most cases, the baby is either rolls to the stomach or is placed on the stomach. And the stomach is, is an unsafe position for babies, at least for the first six months or so. Uh, really, for the first year is what the Academy of Pediatrics recommends. But, you know, by six months, they're rolling and rocking and rolling all over the place. So what we recommend to parents is in those first months to do what's called tummy time. So you put the baby, you know, when the baby's awake and you're playing, put them on the stomach, help them learn how to extend their arms and lift their little chests off the cushion. I know you just lifted your chest there, you know, because we want to help these babies develop the, the kind of the muscle capabilities to be able to lift their heads up, lift their chests up, be able to roll from the stomach back to the back, which is the safer position. There are a bunch of other things, though, that are also associated with SIDS that parents can be aware of to keep their baby safer. One is not smoking cigarettes, both during pregnancy and after pregnancy. Cigarettes are very much associated with a higher risk of not breathing. Having the babies in the room with you, not in the bed with you. And this is kind of something that parents get a little confused about because some people recommend, oh, bed sharing, it's so wonderful, it helps to support breastfeeding. But the problem is that when you're really tired, You have a very similar brain impairment to when you're drunk. It's kind of why people, I mean, there are as many car accidents caused by exhaustion as caused by drunk driving. And so parents are exhausted. Why would you, you would never bring the baby in bed with you if you were drunk. Why would you do it if you are so tired you're the equivalent of drunk? Much better to have the baby right next to you, arms right at arm's reach, so that you can have the baby close by for feeding the baby or calming, nurturing the baby in the middle of the night when they have a fussy period. But that becomes an important thing. And I I know there's controversy about that, but from a pediatric side of things that the Academy of Pediatrics recommends not bed sharing, at least for those first, you know, six months until the baby is much better able to push into the right position. But there are other things as well, like, you know, breastfeeding is good. Using a pacifier when the baby goes to bed at night, for some reason, seems to be protective getting your vaccinations. So there are a bunch of things we can do to reduce those 3,500 deaths. And now, and that was, and thank you for mentioning SNU, who is really the reason why I was actually retired. I'm kind of an older pediatrician and we kind of did my teaching and did my practicing and whatnot. But my wife and I decided to start this company because we were so compelled and we felt that we could really help reduce the number of deaths that babies have. So Snoo is a bed that rocks and shushes babies, imitating the womb experience. It responds when a baby is crying with increasing rocking and shushing, kind of the way that really a great, your sister would do it if she came and said, you know, you had a baby and she said, Nina, go to sleep. I'm going to hold and rock this baby all night. If I can't calm the baby down, I'm going to come and get you to do a feeding. And so Snoo has four different levels of motion and sound imitating a caregiver to soothe babies and help them get fall back asleep. We, about half the time, we can calm crying in, within 30 seconds, even for colicky babies. So that's really been an advance. And even in hospitals, 150 hospitals use snu now as a way of improving the care of the babies and helping them sleep and be less upset. But the, the real kicker with snu is that it has a special swaddle blanket that is a safe swaddle. It's a very effective, it's a five seconds, the baby swaddle, super easy, but it keeps babies on the back. So they cannot, they can move around, but they cannot flip. And because of that, we're very, very hopeful at reducing the risk of SIDS. And in fact, it's recognized by the FDA as what they call a breakthrough device, meaning that it has high potential for being the first device ever to be able to protect children while they're sleeping from accidentally rolling to an unsafe position and bad things happening.
0: And I'm curious, I believe it was in the 1990s, that whole back to sleep campaign started so that we can lower the chances or, you know, the risks of SIDS. And it was very successful. What is it about being on the back versus laying on the tummy that can really reduce those chances? Because that was such a successful campaign. And obviously we still follow that guideline of babies go back to sleep on their backs. Do you know, oh, I'm sure you probably do. (laughs) What is the significance? Like why is the back so much better than the stomach? Or the side, even?
1: Yeah, you're right. It's a really good question. So when I started in pediatric practice, we only told people to put the babies to sleep on the stomach. We thought on the back, the baby would spit up and maybe choke or pneumonia or or die because of that. And it turns out babies sleep more soundly on the stomach. So they slept better than a baby on the back, startles itself and, you know, can wake up more accidentally, wax itself in the nose when trying to suck on the fingers, And so we only recommended stomach sleeping, and we thought back sleeping was a risk. In the early 1990s, we came to realize it was exactly the opposite, exactly the opposite. On the stomach was a higher risk of death and even more more risk of choking and more risk of choking on your vomit. When you're on your back, there's less risk of that, even though it, it doesn't seem like it would be that way. But if you feel your own neck, your windpipe is in the front. So when you're on the back, if you spit up a little bit, the milk pools in the back of your throat, not in your windpipe, and it's easier to swallow back down. So actually, it's safer from the choking point of view. But most importantly, what we discovered is that when babies are on the stomachs, on the stomach, rather, they, number one, of course, the face can get into a pillow or a mattress, and that can make it hard for them to breathe. That's some of the deaths. But it turns out the babies just are so in a deep sleep that even when they're not breathing, they don't recognize that they're not breathing and they don't end up waking up. So ordinarily, the baby should be aroused. You know, if if you hold your hand over a baby's nose and mouth, they're going to struggle within a few seconds. It's like, I can't breathe. Any of us would. But when you're in a deep, deep, deep sleep, they weren't responding to that. And so we learned that flipping on the back, just by doing that, we reduced the number of deaths from 5,500 deaths a year to 3,500 deaths a year, almost by 50%. And you might think that's the end of the story. But in the last 22 years, since the year 2000, zero improvement in the number of deaths, zero reduction, 3,500 deaths, 10 a day, day in and day out, day in and day out, even though people know to put the babies on the back. So what's up with that? Why didn't it get even better. And the reason is because of a couple of things. Number one, babies are safer on the back, but they wake up more. And that's really hard on parents. And so what happens is some parents go, I know I should put him on the back, but he sleeps so much better on the stomach and I'm exhausted and I got to get to work. And I almost got in a car accident yesterday. So I need to preserve myself. And my baby seems to define... My grandmother said, we always put babies to sleep on the stomach back then, so you know it shouldn't be a problem. And for most babies, it's not a problem. It's just like one in a thousand, and then it's the worst thing that ever happened to you in your life, and you will never recover from it. So we err on the side of caution, keeping the kids on the back. But some of them ignore that advice and put them on the stomach. Some babies roll to the stomach, and then some... Parents are so tired, they fall asleep with the baby in bed with them. And that is where half of the babies die. So half of them die now when they roll over and half of them die when they're brought into bed. And a few of them die in a safe position on their backs. And we don't even know what happens to those kids. Why? They just forget to breathe. But it's especially a problem It really from, it's between one month of age and 12 months, but it's especially a problem before six months of age, And especially, especially, especially between two and four months of age. And that is exactly when they're rolling over and exactly when parents go, I am so tired, I just didn't even know I fell asleep with the baby. And that's why we're hoping that SNU will be helpful, because by rocking the babies, we add an hour or two to the baby's sleep. I mean, by two months of age, on average, Babies will sleep a seven-hour stretch in snoo on average. Some sleep longer than that. Some a little less as well. if you can get seven hours sleep, you it's pretty livable. You can get back to work and take care of your other kids and kind of get by. So we're hoping that by securing babies on the back and by improving sleep, we will substantially be able to you know reduce that risk. And I want to say other risks because one of the things we've seen this year. Uh, We've had two studies, one at the University of Colorado and one at a major university in Australia. We've shown that by using SNU and improving sleep and reducing your anxiety that the baby's going to roll to an unsafe position, we actually saw reductions in postpartum depression. And so more work needs to be done. It's not the final evidence on that. But it does kind of make sense because 20 to 25% of new mothers, especially since COVID, Will develop postpartum depression and/or anxiety, and a lot of their their partners will as well. And so it seems like it would be really great if we could do something that reduced that. And I have to say, one of the things our go- when Snoo came out, it's a super expensive baby bed, and people go, well, wow, that's great for Beyonce," but you know, Elon Musk used it, but you know, that's really pricey. But these we rent them now for about five dollars a day. It's really a Starbucks to get a 24 hour helper and a safer baby. And now actually thousands of people get them for free through their employer. And so big companies like JP Morgan and Snapchat and Under Armour and many, many other companies give it as a benefit. So we're, we would love everybody to contact us who has an employer to see if we can help work with them and help the employer subsidize it so that everyone can get a free snoo. That's our goal. Oh,
0: I love it. And this is such great information for us parents to listen to and keep in mind for sure, especially ones who are bringing their little babies home. And I want to go to, you said something about like a pillow and that reminded me about a safe sleep environment. So Dr. Clark, you know, providing babies with a safe sleep environment is incredibly important to parents and as it should be. <laughs> what are the biggest do's and don'ts regarding safe sleep and their environment?
1: Number 1, we in pediatrics we talk about the ABCs of safe sleep. That's alone on the back in a crib or in some sleep surface, a snoo, a bassinet, something like that. Alone meaning not with other kids or adults for that matter, on the back, of course. And you want them without pillows and without comforters and things like that, that they might roll into and get their face planted and have difficulty breathing. Other things that you can pay attention to, one, we talked about cigarette smoke. Obviously, you'd want to avoid that. And you know, the weird thing about it is smokers don't recognize this, but If you go into a room, like even if you only smoke in the living room and you walk into the bedroom, you're gonna smell that smoke. It really does permeate the house. So not smoking in the house is really, really important. Another thing is the temperature of the room. If it's too warm, I know you're in Texas and you had some really, really warm days this year, probably it's gonna get worse if global warming really continues on the path that it's going on. And so making sure the babies aren't red and hot and sweaty is important. The swaddle blanket we made, it's called Sleepy, S-L-E-E-P-E-A. But anyway, it has mesh over the legs and the chest so that babies are less likely to get overheated. The other thing is not making them too cold also, because being too cold is also a risk factor. So it's easy to check your baby for that. So feel their ears, feel their nose. If the nose is cold and the ears are cold, you know, the baby probably is too chilled. On the other hand, if the ears are really warm and the neck is sweaty, then they're overheated. So it's pretty easy to tell, you know, kind of like Goldilocks, you know, <laughs> is the porridge too hot or too cold.
0: And so is that I've been told that it's usually between 68 degrees and 72 degrees is like that ideal room temperature that you want to shoot for when putting your baby to sleep. Is that correct?
1: It's pretty much the case, but you know, it all depends on how much a baby's bundled up. And so there can be some differences. That's why I always like parents to know how to check their baby. You know, if the room is comfortable for you, that's great. But in the wintertime, a lot of it's expensive now with heating. And so people keep their homes a little bit more cooled. And that's okay as long as the baby, you know, you might double put them in in a sleeper and then a jumper on top of that and then in a swaddle. But the way you will always know if you're right or wrong is just by feeling their neck and nose and ears.
0: Such a great tip. And Dr. Karp, we know that the American Academy of Pediatrics recently updated their safe sleep guidelines. Can you elaborate on these new guidelines and what they mean for us parents?
1: Yeah, I would say for the most part, they're really like the older guidelines. So, the things that you were mentioning that we were talking about, back to sleep is still the number one recommendation. Avoiding cigarettes, breastfeeding has really been shown to probably reduce the risk of SIDS in half. The other thing about breastfeeding, which is so great, is it's more healthy for the mother as well. If you can do it, and, and a lot of people struggle with that. And of course, there are great postpartum doulas like yourself and lactation consultants. And La Leche League is free to anyone who wants to contact La Leche League to get support. And there's tons of stuff on the internet. So I'm, I'm saying this because breastfeeding is the most natural thing in the world, but it's not always the easiest thing in the world. It is once you get the hang of it, but in the beginning, it can be a challenge. And so it's important not to get frustrated and give up, but to recognize that there's a lot of help out there so that you can succeed at that, which is healthy for you. It reduces your risk of breast cancer, probably reduces the risk of ovarian cancer as well. And even, you know, may even help you lose weight because you're, you know, you're giving up, you're burning calories, you know, through giving milk to the baby.
0: Dr. Carp, I wish that were true. I swear when I was breastfeeding both my kids, I gained weight with both of them. And then when I stopped breastfeeding, I lost weight. I was like, what is wrong with me? I'm like the opposite. (laughs) I
1: know, I know, I know. And that's why I was kind of gentle in the way I said that it might be the case because there are... A lot of women have trouble keeping their weight on with breastfeeding. So anyway, it's very individual. But the more important thing is that you're improving your health. And of course, you're giving your baby, you know, formula is great. And thank God we have it. But there are hundreds of little ingredients that are in breast milk that will never be in formula. Things that are improve the immune system and are nutritionally valuable and keep even the We're learning a lot about the intestinal bacteria and how breast milk is supportive of healthy bacteria in the intestine. I mean, all sorts of things that were really crazy, isn't it? It's you know, thousands of years later and we're still learning about why breast milk is such a help. Again, if you can do it, and it's important that women, you know, get the support they need, but to not be smashing yourselves over the head with guilt and all that kind of stuff if it doesn't work out because It doesn't for everybody. And then there are a lot of parents out there who are foster parents or adoptive parents who may not have the opportunity to do that, or, you know, same-sex parents where maybe they don't have the opportunity to do that. You know, lots and lots of reasons why it doesn't always work out. What I always tell my patients is, you know, be flexible or die. I mean, it's good to have a philosophy, but you got to chuck it sometimes if it just doesn't work for you. So you got to be practical.
0: I love that. Absolutely. I totally agree. And I'm curious now, I need to know what your thoughts are on that recent groundbreaking research by Dr. Carmel Harrington. She had identified that biochemical marker that might play a role in infants who have died from SIDS. It's all about like their certain, it's like B-C-H-E levels. I don't know how you pronounce that, but when, did you see this research and what are your thoughts on this?
1: Yeah. So that is a fascinating story because this is a researcher who actually lost a child to SIDS and then she dedicated herself over 20 years to trying to find a way to figure out which child is at risk. So it's a blood test that can be done at birth months before the baby is actually in that risky period. It's a wonderful story. Unfortunately, it's not going to be, at least as of right now, it doesn't seem like it's very helpful. And the reason unfortunately for that, is that there are many more children who are positive who never get SIDS. So you're identifying in a very large population, probably only one or 2% of them will go on to have a problem. But these parents are now going to be flipping out because they feel like their child is at high risk. And there are also children who die of SIDS who don't have that marker. So really from a practical point of view, how do we prevent SIDS? We know how to do that you know, we know how to do that. Keep them on the back so they can't roll over. Keep them out of your bed. Don't smoke cigarettes, breastfeed, use pacifiers. And the opportunity is to take these 3,500 deaths and reduce it by thousands. We have that ability now without any super duper blood tests and things like that. So unfortunately, I mean, it's fascinating work and it'll probably lead to more discoveries, but it's not really a practical help for, you know, for everyday parents.
0: Okay. That's good to know. I was curious to get your take on that new research, but hopefully, yes, it inspires even more research to be done and we get some more answers for parents. But what are the common no-nos you see parents make when it comes to infant sleep? And like, how do you advise parents to change these habits?
1: So one of the things is the idea, well, number one, you have to have appropriate expectations. And those expectations are that in the first you know month, Babies are going to wake up every three hours, three and a half hours will be the longest stretch. Maybe four hours is the longest stretch you can expect in that first month or six weeks. And they need to wake up. They need to eat. In the womb, they're being fed every second. So, you know, if they go two, three hours, they're like, I am doing you a big favor. I don't know, you know. So appropriate expectations are important. Part of the appropriate expectations is that if your baby is sleeping more than an hour and a half or two hours during the day, wake them up and feed them. I mean, you don't have to do that, but if you don't wake them up and feed them during the day, they're going to wake you up for feeding at night. So if you want to help them get their day-night oriented, you want to do more feeding during the day so that they're less hungry at night. What's weird about babies or wonderful about babies, I should say, which is different than adults, is that, you know, you might have eaten a big meal and then you go to bed and on the pillow next to yours is this piece of your favorite chocolate cake. Yeah. Just nibble Even though you're not hungry, you know, it just tastes so good. Babies, for the most part, will eat a certain number of ounces a day. And that's kind of it. And even if you try to give them more and it's sweet, delicious milk, they go, no, thank you. I'm done. And so if you're not giving them during the day, they're going to need it at night. If you're giving it during the day, there'll be less needing of that at night. And maybe the other big thing, So I wrote, you were kind to mention The Happiest Baby on the Block. Um, That's really about the first six months of life. And actually there's a video, a streaming video. We have it on our website. You know, as much as I I wrote a book, I think it's a good book, but people really learn these techniques better by watching. And it's kind of like tying your shoelaces. You know, you can read about tying your shoelaces, but you're going to learn it better by watching somebody. There's also this book called The Happiest Toddler on the Block which is for kids eight months to five years of age, totally different approach, but similar in the sense that it feels weird when you're doing it. And then, oh my gosh, you can see changes in a day and two and three, meaning better, fewer temper tantrums, shorter temper tantrums, but more patient, cooperative kids, more respectful communication. So that's really a fun thing. Again, there's a video that helps people get that one, but that book is really important. There's a lot more in the book than even in the video, but you still you have to see the techniques. Anyway, this is a long-winded way of getting to the third book, which is called The Happiest Baby Guide to Great Sleep, which is for the first five years of life. It's about sleep over the first five years. And there's a technique in there called wake and sleep. And so you ask, what are the mistakes or the do's and don'ts? And it's wonderful to rock your baby to sleep, nurse your baby to sleep, enjoy that cuddling. It's not gonna last forever. And it will be one of your sweetest, most wonderful memories of when you had your baby. Then you put them down in the bed and they're asleep. And even though people say, never wake a sleeping baby, you have to wake the baby when you put them down. And the reason that you do that is because you want them to start learning how to be able to put themselves to sleep. If they're in a snooze, snooze rocks them and shushes them. And kind of like, you know, when you're in an airplane and you... You fall asleep and then you wake up, you look around and then you fall back asleep again for a little bit. Babies do that in snoo, and it really helps their brain mature and develop and organize their sleep. But if you don't have a snoo, you still can use white noise and swaddling. But if you wake the baby up, you know, they're kind of in dreamland. They're a little bit drunk from the milk that they were drinking. And usually it's pretty easy to rock them back to sleep and trish them back to sleep when they're in the bassinet. And then they're having like a 10 second experience of being able to put themselves to sleep without being in your arms and without being at the breast or with a bottle in their mouths. Mm -hmm. You can use a pacifier again, that's fine to use it when they're in the bassinet. That way starts teaching them to be able to self-soothe and gets them on the road to being able to be better independent sleepers.
0: And you mentioned swaddle and it sparked a question for me. I know that, you know, I have to make sure that I tell my clients, hey, uh, once they start showing signs of rolling, we need to start removing an arm from the swaddle. What do you tell your followers and your patients about, you know, that transition from the swaddle? Because I know it's good for safe sleep in the beginning, but then at a certain point it can become a hazard.
1: Exactly right. So with swaddling, like anything else, there are good sides and bad sides to it. So you have to do it safely. When you swaddle babies, you don't want their hips too tight. They have to be able to frog leg their hips open. That's the safe position. You don't want them overheated. You don't want loose blankets wrapping around them. And you don't want them flipped over on their stomach. It's not good to be on your stomach in general, but when you're swaddled on your stomach, it even triples the risk. So when babies start rolling over is when we usually lose the blanket. That's usually around three months or so. Give or take, could be a little earlier, a little bit later. Having said that, swaddling improves sleep and reduces crying. And so it's really a great tool. That's why cultures around the world have used it for thousands of years because it's so incredibly helpful. Because, like we said in the beginning, babies should be in the womb for four more months. They should be held and consoled. If a baby is crying and you're not using swaddling, you're going to swaddle them with your arms. You're not just going to let them flail around. So, the one way that you can safely swaddle babies beyond three months or when they're already rolling over is with the snoo. That's really why we created that. So you get all the benefits of swaddling without the risks of swaddling. And then usually, by four months in snoo, there are little armholes in the sack, so you can let their arms out. and then by usually by around six months, they're able to sleep better and and there's a weaning feature on the bed on the app so that we can wean them off of motion. I encourage people to use white noise. Like you were saying, you know, you used it so successfully. I would recommend using it for years. I mean, a lot of adults use white noise to help them sleep.
0: It's so true. Dr. Karp, what tips do you have to give parents when it comes to like giving them peace of mind regarding safe sleep?
1: The most important message, I guess, is that you are the parent and that there are some times that you follow your baby, like when they're hungry and they're crying, I wouldn't hold on to a rigid schedule saying, no, honey, you can't eat for a half hour and the baby's crying out of hunger. That doesn't make sense to me. But there's sometimes where you have to do the leading. One of those things was about, you know, wake and sleep. Like I just said, that when you put them down, you wake them up a little bit so that they start learning to put themselves to sleep. And the other is, even though it's cuddly and sweet to sleep with the baby in bed with you, even though babies sleep, sometimes sleep more deeply when they're on their stomach. Those are really temptations you want to avoid, both bed sharing and stomach sleeping. It's just not worth the risk. Tell you one tiny little story. Normally at medical conferences, they bring a big professor in to give the first lecture, what they call the keynote lecture. And I was at a conference on safe sleep down in Florida a few years back. And the keynote lecturer was a mother from Ohio who want to tell her story. And this is her story. She had a baby. Her pediatrician said, you know what's wonderful is sharing the bed with your baby. It improves breastfeeding. It's cozy and sweet. Babies love being next to you. And so the woman brought the baby in bed with her for the first nine months of the baby's life. She said it was the most wonderful, beautiful experience. She loved it. With her next baby, she asked the doctor again, and the doctor said, well, wasn't it a great experience the first time? Of course, I recommend you bed share with your baby. And she said, again, it was this wonderful experience until my baby was four months old, and I woke up and my shoulder was over my baby's face, and my baby was blue and lifeless next to me. And she said, all I can do now is go from city to city to tell parents, do not do what I did. Do not make that same mistake. And so that's really, for me, the take home message. Again, when you're really tired, which you are as a new parent, you're the equivalent of drunk. You would never drive in the car in that situation and you shouldn't bring them for 10 hours where you have no control over what your body is doing when you're deep in sleep. So that's kind of my take-home message.
0: Thank you for sharing that story because I think, yeah, parents want to know what they can possibly do to keep their baby the safest, so this is helpful. And Dr. Karp, is there just one thing you want our listeners to know about safe sleep?
1: I would say it is, you know, not putting the baby on the stomach and not bringing them into bed with you, as we've talked about a few times here. Those are the big, and cigarette smoking. I guess three things, the one thing I would say are those two things <laughs> and breastfeeding. So having said that, I mean, the good news is you're not powerless, right? The good news is you can make your baby safer if you take these precautions. No one does it 100%. Some babies, you do everything right and it's just out of your hands. So you can't, man, you know, helicopter parents are trying to do everything, you know, perfectly. And at some point, you know, we just, have to put it up to a higher power. But the fact of the matter is that there's a lot you can do. It's easy. With SNU. it's like $4 a day. Hey, listen, like I said, people can get it for free from their employers. Ultimately, we think insurance companies and the government will sponsor these. We're using them in 150 hospitals. We're using it for normal babies and premature babies and babies withdrawing from opiates and babies who have surgery. This will be the norm, we think, in another couple of years maybe sooner than that. So, but parents can, if you knock on the door of your HR department, you can persuade them to call us. You know, we're really happy to speak to employers about how we can make that possible.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Karp. This is just so wonderful and helpful. And please let our listeners know where they can, they can find you.
1: That is a really good question. I don't really handle our social media. So we're on Instagram and we're on Facebook they can certainly come to happiestbaby.com. We actually have millions of people coming to our website just for free content. Just like the great content that you're sharing with people, we're also, you know, happy to share content with families about babies and toddlers and sleep and other things because parents are out there just trying to do the best they can do. And I know you are so dedicated to helping them, you know, find some good advice. And we are as well. So the website is is a great place people can come to.
0: Perfect. This is so helpful. And thank you again for your time and sharing your knowledge with us about this important topic. So thank you again, Dr. Carton.
1: Thank you so much for the opportunity. Take care, Of now. course,
0: of course. And for our listeners out there to learn more about Dr. Karp, as he said, you can visit him on the website at happiestbaby.com. Our team will be posting today's episode on our Baby Chick Facebook page. So if you have any questions or comments about our discussion, please share them with us in the comment section. And as always, if you haven't already, please subscribe to Chick Chat, the Baby Chick podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us an honest review. Cheers to safer sleep for our babies.